Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. Today's esteemed guest is John A. Byrne, the editor and chairman of Sea Change Media, which controls multiple influential sites, including Poets and Quants, a leading MBA resource. Frank, want to tell us a little bit more about John? Sure. John A. Byrne is a renowned media businessman with over 30 years in the media and journalism industry. With a BA in English and political science and a master's in journalism, John is known for his disarming style and hard-hitting rankings. That's right. In fact, it was John who, in 1988, crafted Bloomberg Businessweek's first MBA ranking system. He also holds a record 58 cover stories for Bloomberg Magazine while with the firm. Yeah, John's a forward thinker. As the founder of Sea Change, a digital media firm, John has created something that capitalizes on all the change in the media and tech space. The site, Poets and Quants, is essential to the MBA experience and gets over a million page visits a month. I think many of us in the MBA community have turned to Poets and Quants throughout our experience at school, mostly because the content is so highly relevant to our population. I really can't wait to hear his story. Yeah, you know, this is actually a special episode for us, not only because John is such a great guest, but for Sherry and I, this is our last podcast we're doing for Stern Chats. It's unbelievable to think that we've come this far, and I couldn't have done it without you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Sherry, this has been a really fun uh, venture that we started. Every podcast has been so impactful to me. And thanks for being a great partner. And it's, hey, we're leaving it in great hands. Absolutely. We want to thank Nasham Jamshidi, who produced this episode. Thank you so much. Bob Kerr and Dan Tennyson in the booth. And of course, our amazing board members who will not only carry on Stern Chats, but make it even better in the future. Yeah. Thanks to all the Stern Chats listeners out there. Please keep listening. It's such a great podcast and you have so much to look forward to. Uh, certainly season four. The, the show just keeps getting better and better, but we got to graduate. We got to get out of here. So for us, our last recording, thank you to everyone that has been listening. All right, everybody. Last podcast for me and Sherry. Let's just get right into it, Sherry. Let's start the show, Frank. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Stern Chats. We're here with John Byrne. We are so excited that you could come. Thank you so much for coming to the studio. It's a pure pleasure for me. You made it, even though uh, you may have zigged when you should have zagged, walking to <laughs> Avenue D instead of to West 4th Street. Indeed. I'm embarrassed by that as a former New Yorker. Yeah, don't don't feel bad, though. You know, most people can't even find the studio when they're in the building. <laughs> that <laughs> is very true. Yeah. You know what? You were drawn to the East River. You just you, you had to get the, the wind in your hair before coming to the studio. I did live on the Upper East Side, so that was it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a nice neighborhood you're going to live in, the Upper East Side. Indeed. So, Sherry, we know Poets and Quants here at Stern. If you're an MBA student, you know Poets and Quants. It's a famous thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know that when I was speaking to students who were either in their MBA program or even preparing for their MBA, MBA program themselves, I mean, the, the number one resource is Poets and Quants. Yeah, before you even get the marketing materials from a school, you're giving it a Google and you're probably showing up at Poets and Quants. But for people that don't know Poets and Quants, maybe to a person that's never run into the site, what is Poets and Quants? Okay, it's really simple. People may be mystified by our title, but it really makes a lot of sense. Because what I think what a, what a great business school does is bring together a group of diverse people 
poets, liberal arts majors, with quants, engineering and science majors. And what they do is they build on the strengths and they minimize the weaknesses because they work in collaborative teams. And that's basically the nature of poets and quants. What we're trying to do is give people information to make informed choices about a very big decision in your life. As the two of you know, you're about to graduate in eight days. It's expensive. Yeah, and, it's not cheap. And, 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 and the search for the right school and the right fit is obsessive. People consume information like crazy. There's a lot of information out there. Our goal is to help people make the right choices for them. So there are a lot of sites out there, to your point. I mean, there are many different ranking systems and aggregators of data. What is it that sets Poets and Quants apart from those sites? I think there are three things. Number one, we write for a certain demographic. And the demographic are basically the best and brightest applicants to the world's best business schools, period. A lot of other sites write stuff for schools necessarily, not for the applicant. So I always have in the, in the back of my head who my audience is and what they need to know and what they want to know. The second thing, we are really journalistic. We have five full-time writers. They are all journalists. They're trained as journalists. They're reporters. So the content on the site is uh, reported and written with a journalistic perspective, meaning uh, we are not cheerleaders. We call it as we see it. You're neutral. We, we've written, no, we've written a lot of negative stories, frankly. Oh, and be we, negative, and, too. And we've written a lot of positive stories. But the, but the truth is, we are not a cheerleading site. Third thing is, I would say that we are an incredible advocate for the MBA degree. I believe in the degree. I think it's a no-brainer investment, despite the price tag on it. I am a first-generation college student. I believe in higher education. The reason I do this is because I came from um, a background where I didn't have a single white-collar professional in my family. My parents were uneducated. I lucked out by going to school, and it transformed my life. And I knew nothing about the higher education field, didn't even know there was a hierarchy of schools. I mean, I was totally in the dark. And what I'm trying to do is put as much information out there as I can for people to understand what this landscape looks like, what it takes to get into a good school, what the rewards are, how one school is differentiated from the other, because I didn't have that. And when you're building a landscape like that, you know, our first instinct is go to the rankings. You know, how does one school stack up against the other? And we know that, you know, from our research, you actually, back in 1988, created... Yeah, you, like, invented it. Yeah, Business Week, Bloomberg Business Week's MBA rankings. So, first of all, what was that process like, and how did those rankings differ from puts and quants? Yeah, first I know that uh, that was a dubious distinction, to be sure. Uh, but back in 88, you know, there was no regularly published ranking of MBA programs. And uh, there was a lot of data out there that the schools put out, but no real ranking. And uh, at the time, there's a lot of criticism by companies about the product that was coming out. In other words, they were technically proficient, and the companies loved that. But in many places, there was sort of a lack of teamwork and collaboration and the value that comes from working with others. So a lot of the uh, product coming out of the schools back then were lone rangers, let's put it that way. So I had an idea, okay, I wanted to basically hold feet to the fire. 
So I wanted a system that, that didn't rank schools based on GMATs, GPAs, acceptance rates, salaries. I wanted a system that basically ranked schools um, based on customer satisfaction. So we surveyed for the very first time the graduates of the program on the theory that, hey, these were really discerning customers. They paid a lot of money. They made a big decision here. They're not young undergraduates. They know what they wanted, and we wanted to see if they got what they wanted. And then we um, actually surveyed the corporate recruiters for the first time ever and asked them about not only uh, how they thought the schools did, but more importantly, the track record of the graduates that they hired in their company. We did a lot of due diligence on the corporate side, so we made sure that alumni were not filling these surveys out. Uh, We made sure that only one survey went to a particular company. We made sure they were recruiting at multiple schools, so they had a basis for comparing one school to another. Uh, And out came the ranking in 1988. And it was kind of revolutionary because no one had ever done that before. And because it was a third party surveying both companies and graduates, it was pure customer satisfaction. The other interesting thing about it is I think it was a really clean survey, and I'll tell you why. We didn't tell people we were going to rank the schools. So we, we we did these surveys, and I think that they were filled out with a level of honesty that's missing in most of the surveys today. Right, because if you're handed a survey and you know what the end end state is going to be, you may insert your bias. And Frank, I completely trust you, but if I send you a survey after you graduate from Stern, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's I, the I, best. Okay, come on, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know how it goes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, okay. because it's That's only in nature. our self interest, yeah. right? To, totally uh, to, to rank it very, very highly. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, and. You got to love yourself. You got to love the place you're in. Everyone is biased towards like their own little slice of the pie, of course. And rankings are key to the process. I think that's the place that most people turn first to learn about the landscape of schools and where they stand. And there's no one, no one in the world, another dubious distinction, that covers rankings like we do. And we cover them very critically. So, you know, there are five major rankings, Bloomberg Businessweek, U.S. News, Forbes, The Economist, and Financial Times. And uh, when any one of those comes out, we have far more thorough, deeper, profound coverage of the ranking than any of the publications do. The beauty of all this is that the FT doesn't want to write about U.S. News. Businessweek is not going to write about The Economist. And so these things are not covered. And, and if they are uh, written about, they're not covered with an eye uh, of someone who's been in the dark room uh, working the magic over the algorithms and the data. And anyone who's worked with data knows that they inevitably produce odd, quirky results at times. Data can be quirky. Uh, definitely. There's always an anomaly in data. And the thing about journalists is there's a mindlessness to journalism that uh, (laughs) pervades all of it. And basically, journalists feel very awkward about going in and dealing with anomalies. So they allow the anomalies to appear even though that uh, destroys the credibility of the work. And uh, one ranking after another will have many anomalies, will have a great amount of volatility. And volatility is bad for a result because the more consistent a result is, obviously, the more authoritative it is. So if you have a high percentage of the schools that you're ranking, 
doing double-digit climbs and dips, uh, it doesn't say a whole lot for your methodology because, let's face it, schools don't change all that much year over year. <laughs> that is very right. true. And, you know, thorough and consistent is super important for an audience. I mean, yeah. it, it, that volatility factor really does make people lose trust in what you're producing. And we're really interested to know about the fact that right now you have a huge audience of people, that they, they come to you for thorough and consistent news. I, I was reading one report that said you have a million people a month that come to your website. But it didn't start there, right? No, no. It didn't, uh, there's no way you launched your site and you had a million. You're like, wow, a million people. It was that easy. <laughs> yeah, really. No, no, that's uh, almost nine years of work. Thousands upon thousands of stories. Um, Tell us about the early days. Well, I had been executive editor of Business Week magazine. Before that, I was editor-in-chief of Fast Company. Bloomberg acquired Business Week, and I decided to go off and do my own thing. Originally, the idea was to do a Huffington Post for business. And we were going to do about a dozen micro-sites in areas of business coverage that are either undercovered or not covered at all. Uh, There'd be a site on doing business in China, one on doing business in India, one on disruptive entrepreneurs. I started with MBAs because I knew that well. And here was a little other thing that I knew because I ran Business Week's online operation. The average unique in a month at Business Week did only 1.8 page views per month, which meant that they were hit-and-run people. They came in and they came out to see one particular story and walked away. The people who went into the Business Week business school community did 58 page views a month. It was really sticky. It was the only place the magazine had real, true community. And it told me that that was a good place to start. Also, I knew a lot. So when I did the ranking, I did it for maybe the first three or four iterations, but I supervised it over the years. I also wrote several guidebooks to MBA programs, guidebooks to executive education, executive MBAs. But I had walked away from that area and did a lot of other different things. Nonetheless, you know, I knew a lot of people, and I knew this is something I'd get my arms around very quickly. So I decided the first site would be Poets and Quants in this Huffington Post group. Uh, in three months, we were cash flow positive. In the first year, we were profitable. That's quick. Uh, yes. That's real quick. That it, is very much a success it, story. It, yeah. it caught fire very quickly. And, and I did a few things that, in retrospect, were uh, not so dumb. Uh, yeah, let's hear about that. <laughs> uh, okay, Tips back, and tricks. Yeah, yeah, we will absorb okay. all of the information. <laughs> like nine years ago, Google basically indexed very aggressively social media. So six months before I started the site, I started channels on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and I began to curate existing coverage and comment on it. And that basically seeded the site because, you know, when you put something up, Google doesn't discover you immediately. In fact, back then, it could take six months to a full year before Google would index your site. But they were, they were indexing already all of those social media posts. So immediately, we had a big head start when we launched. Oh, because now you're getting Google hits. Yeah, totally. And that was super important to the site's launch. The other thing, I think, is that I traded on my kind of reputation. I knew a lot of people in the field, even though I had walked away from it. And I used those contacts and my knowledge to not only write, but write with perspective and, and almost write magazine-length stories, even though it was online journalism. Because I really believe that online journalism shouldn't necessarily be five or six paragraphs. It should be the definitive story on any topic. 
Yeah, there's no there's no page limit. No. It's like an endless. You can literally endless scroll. Bottomless. Uh, that's true. And you know, for obsessive MBA applicants who want to know a lot about a given topic, as narrow as it sometimes might be, uh, they want to read. They want to. They want to get deep into it. They don't want a superficial level. Uh, and the existing competition, primarily Business Week and Financial Times, and occasionally the Wall Street Journal that might pop in, uh, they don't write it at a deep level. They're not in the weeds. And and the journalists will write stories that they're interested in, not necessarily for the applicant. So I think what you're talking about, though, is capitalizing on a sea change in media and technology, which so happens <laughs> to be the name of the company that you Segway, founded. Sherry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. But, sea change. But I think something that you know we think about all the time and, and that we take full courses in is how to identify those new trends, how to look and see what isn't there yet and, and you know, be an entrant in a new space. So what was it that triggered you to start making those comments on the blog posts and really enter this new field with sea change? So when I ran the online operation, and, you know, uh, the media world at that time was undergoing a tremendous transformation. The business model had been yanked out from under it. Uh, every analog dollar became a digital dime. Yeah, people thought print would last forever. Yeah, and that's not that's not going to happen. And, and most print loses money. I would tell you that Business Week today probably loses thirty five million a year. Uh, in the last year that I was executive editor, Business Week lost sixty five million dollars on fifty issues. That's over a million dollars per issue. Um, and uh, Fortune and Forbes all were losing money as well. So, sea uh, change, but that's, that's a really important idea because that's our umbrella company. And the C, as in Charles, stands for curation, content, and community. Back nine years ago, Facebook was community. Uh, Yahoo Finance was largely curation. And then the traditional old media sites were original content. I felt that all three should be brought together in one place. And so when we did original content, I saw it as a campfire around which you gather an audience and you tell stories and you amplify the story, and that's how you create community. And curation, I think, is important because you want to be the one place that gathers anything that's really important about the field, whether you produce it or not, and bring it in front of your audience. And my feeling was that uh, everyone was doing one of the three, but no one was doing all three at once. And I felt that there was tremendous value to do that, which is why we named the company Sea Change Media. You know, another thing that I think is important to poets and quants, besides the trends, besides like the smart decisions you made in the beginning, is the fact that you're very visible. You know, we were researching uh, to, to come in and talk to you, and we're like, well, let's see if we can find uh, you know some good material that John has worked on lately. It's everywhere. I mean, there's videos, there's podcasts, there's articles. I mean, you are right out front leading the charge. Why do you think it is so important to be so visible to your audience? That's crucial to community. The other, one of the things that I tried online at Business Week was to get our journalists to uh, get in the crowd with our uh, readers. And there was incredible reluctance to do they so. They didn't want to do it? They didn't want to do it. They basically want to just go and do another story. That seems like fun. Uh, it can be fun. I think it's important to do. I think you need to be accessible. The other thing is when you have grown-ups in a chat room or in a comment section, 
it moderates the discussion, so you get fewer crazy people commenting. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's really important. Well, that is a okay. that is a scourge on the internet is crazy people commenting. Absolutely, it's also a part of the curation portion of yeah, your that's true. vision. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah, well, I even saw in poets and quants that um, that you will chime in on comments all the time. Absolutely, Just, yeah, like all a random person will say something, and you'd be like, "Well, here's your answer." Yeah, no, 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 that is essential, and I encourage all my writers to do the same thing. Because that builds a sense of community and, and, and it reminds people that even though you are anonymous entering our website and you may ha- feel free to say whatever you want, as crazy as it might be, there are people there who are listening, who are paying attention, who are engaging with you and responding as respectfully as they can. And speaking of engagement, I mean, you have really capitalized on video content, yes. which is something that we noticed a lot. I mean, on your YouTube channel alone, you have over 2,100 subscribers, 130 videos. You seem to really have an affinity for this medium, and you produce videos like Guess the School, Handicapping Your MBA Odds, and one-on-one with you know prominent professors and guests. You know, what is it about video? You know, we're podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're only the voice. We're a dark room. Here. <laughs> yeah. But what is it about video that you're so drawn to? Uh, I think that we have grown up in a visual world, and that is at the disadvantage of words and print. And so I think it, it's really important to create visuals, even when you write, incidentally. But media is an important part of that, and uh, video is the key to it. I mean, what the net allows is you to take an entirely multimedia approach. And if you're not taking advantage of every little lever out there, I think you put yourself at a disadvantage. And we do everything from kind of raw video to very slick, highly produced video. We've done it all over the world, and I just think it's an essential part of reaching the audience. And again, it's all about the mix. There's got to be a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, yeah, and that's and that's know, cool because you are a, you are a writer's writer. Yeah, you know you you could very you could have a great career and do nothing but write because if you look at you know your 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 writing works they are incredibly prolific. You know what made you what made you first of all let's can we get personal? Let's do it absolutely. Yeah. We, we love that here at Stern Chats. <laughs> what, what made you what made you fall in love with writing? I mean, you have so many publications that are incredibly successful. Where did you find that love? Um, you know, I, I, my first love was really music and I studied music and I played the drums and actually could read notes off uh, sheet music, but I really wasn't going to be a great drummer. I wasn't going to be, you weren't Buddy Rich. I, well, I had Buddy Rich's book. I love Buddy Rich. He's my favorite drummer of all time. You see uh, the movie Whiplash. Uh, totally. Are you kidding me? I love it. Oh yeah. But the jazz drummer. Yeah. Miles Teller. Have you seen that chair? Uh, it is a very intense movie. It's fantastic. <laughs> And actually, out on the Bay Area, we have our own, like, uh, younger version of Buddy Rich who plays at Yoshi's. And he used to have a gig in New York every month as well. I think at the Village Vanguard. His name is Tommy Igo. Fantastic guy. I love the Village Vanguard. It is a f- yeah. such a great venue. Yes. And just, and absolutely. Uh, you got to check out some jazz while you're gorgeous. in the city. I know. I uh, Hit the Blue Note. It's on the street. It's I know. on West 4th Street. And I've had, you know, every Christmas time, I don't know if you know Chris Bodie, the trumpet player. We're going off off uh, on a detour here, but yeah. he plays a month-long residency at uh, Yoshi's, and I'm always coming into town to see that. So you're an aficionado. Uh, I, I really am. I, I love jazz. Anyway, here— But you weren't going to be a professional jazz musician. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but what happened is my love of music 
got me into writing because essentially I became rock critic for my college newspaper. And that, that created the bug. And then I just li- liked creating something in my life that was tangible and that other people could see. And, you know, in every journalist, there's a little bit of a reformer. You're always trying to make things better. Now, that's according to your own perspective because right, right, you know, right. Your, yeah. your own perspective may be quite different from uh, the world's perspective. Sure. But that's how I kind of got hooked. And I really wanted to develop the craft of magazine writing. And so I've worked most of my life in magazines and uh, crafting a really beautiful narrative really is, is like, to me, the ultimate. I've written over a dozen books, and, and that's another whole uh, really interesting thing because then you're doing real, true, long form, and you're digging in deep. But I, yeah, I wrote a good number of covers at Business Week. 58. 58. <laughs> uh, that is unprecedented. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tremendous number. It's almost 60. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I, can't, I can't think of 58 things I did here. It's, um, no, it's something I really, I I said, I'm not going to write stories that um, fill empty pages between ads in a magazine. I'm going to write stories that have impact, that capture the true human drama of business in, in all its emotional fervor. And that was sort of what I tried to do at Business Week and elsewhere, Fast Company as well. It's incredible. It's hard to even wrap our head around it because you could be a writer and you get one cover Oh, that's a big deal. And, and it's, it's like a game changer for you. Yeah. And actually, I've only, um, I believe, I'm, I'm 100% certain about this, I'm the only business journalist who have had covers in Fortune, Forbes, Business Week, and Fast Company. Wow. Oof. You're like the Paul McCartney of magazine covers. Yeah. Just keep giving you Grammys. <laughs> but, but I think what's also incredible about your writing career is not only... Have you spearheaded stories yourself? You are also a great partner to other business men and women and have co-authored books with Jack Welch of GE and John Scully of Pepsi and then Apple. What's it like partnering with you know an, another mogul to create a work? It's a really intimate experience, and I really mean that. You know, people who uh, rise at the top of organizations have very few people they can totally and completely trust uh, and confide in. And so when you spend over 1,000 hours one-on-one with a Jack Welch, you leave there thinking, my God, I just earned my PhD in management. And that was really true. Um, The guy is a genius, so is John. and, and they both went through incredibly dramatic stories. The, the, the John story, even more dramatic in many ways, because, of course, he and Steve Jobs fell in love. And uh, they were inseparable. And they meant a lot to each other. And then, basically, the board uh, stripped Jobs of his operating role as head of the Mac division when John was there, uh, because Steve tried to overthrow John. And the board backed John instead. And the drama of that and the emotion of that is all captured in the book. And I got to tell you that grilling him to get that story out of him to put in his own book was so hard for him that he was not being able to sleep at night. And he wanted to return the advance on the book and walk away from the project. 
Yeah. I mean, how did you even push through with those questions? It must have made you feel uncomfortable. No, I loved it because I am all about the drama of business. So I want to know what did you say? And then what did he say? And what did he look like? And, and what did you feel? Those are the questions that really get at trying to basically put in almost a novelistic uh, fashion a nonfiction work. So you have to be so much more than a writer, though, to get those stories out of somebody. I mean, you need to be a friend. You need to be a confidant. You need to have their trust and their partnership. And uh, how, do you, how do you go about building that type of relationship? You make yourself vulnerable. In other words, <laughs> when someone says something to you, you just don't write it down and say, aha, and go on to the next <laughs> question. Okay? You don't bite your pencil and go, huh, yeah, yeah, and no, just no, jot no, no, it. No, no, no. And no. next question. You, you search your own personal experiences, and you offer them up to that individual, and you offer them up in the most genuine possible way because you, it is a genuine conversation. It's not a trick. And by making yourself vulnerable, you invite the other person to uh, be vulnerable, him or herself. And I think that that's a really important part of what a good journalist does, particularly a magazine journalist, not a hit-and-run reporter. Yeah, I've thought about the vulnerability piece a bunch of times because it really is the essence of friendship, like slowly revealing yourself. But I've never thought of, about it in the context of a professional relationship. I, I feel like sometimes you really are guarded professionally because you don't know what the other person's intentions are or what their goals are. I mean, it sounds it sounds a little scary, actually. These are powerful people you were talking to. Yeah, and increasingly today, uh, people are scripted. You right. know, when a, when a reporter yeah. walks in to interview a CEO, you're given a limited amount of time, and you know that the CEO has been grilled with every possible question, so it feels rehearsed. So your job is to take them off the script. You could probably hear when they circle back their talking points. You've been doing this a long time. Always, always, always. And there are, you know, there are other ways around that. Yeah. I mean, do you, like, I think that's what's great about podcasts, yeah. too. You know, you kind of get around the bullets and the talking points, and you get to, like, the person. That's true. I think maybe our generation sometimes really has a disdain for too much sterile content sometimes. There is so much power in long-form journalism. You know, after a, just to Frank's point, you know, you get past the two-minute, you know, the two-minute pitch. And then finally, in that empty space, in a little bit of silence, comes the true story. And, you know, that conversation is really what, what gets at the humanity of whomever it is. And I'm sure that was part of what you were trying to do with these really, really powerful people, trying to, to humanize them, to to give them some background to their audience. It's not easy, <laughs> okay? There are, uh, obviously, there are a lot of people who don't want those stories told, and um, so it's very hard to get them, and you work really hard to do it. I mean, there were people that I literally had to work on for over a year to get them to do an interview. That was not uncommon when you were dealing with certain topics, one of my favorite stories, frankly, is what it's like to work in the most hated company in the world. That was a cover story on Philip Morris back in the 1990s, uh, the tobacco giant. And I interviewed every senior executive at the company and asked them what it was like to be approached by someone at a cocktail party and uh, what your response was when you told them you sold cigarettes at that day and age or what it was like when protesters showed up on your lawn just before Christmas and decorated the tree outside your front door with cigarette butts. What, how did you feel? What did it mean to you? How did you talk about that with your wife and your kids? 
uh, those are questions that are not common in business journalism. No, I can assure you. Okay, <laughs> yeah. and you, and you know, and, and and when they're asked of the CEO and the CFO and the chief marketing officer, and every CEO of every division, Philip Morris, and then you come back and you put that compelling story together, you know, it's it's uh, it has dramatic impact. On people. Well, it sort of goes back to that really common refrain, which is, it's not personal, it's business. And how do you compartmentalize? You know, you're not two people. We're not split down the half. You know, we, we go, especially in this interconnected new world. It's you know, all personal. Every, everything is personal. Everything is very deeply connected. And, you know, speaking about personal stories, we, I mean, we haven't waited a year for this interview, but we've waited quite a long quite time. A bit, yeah. So we would love to know a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, yeah, your education. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you gave us a snap, you give a tiny snapshot and you just moved right on. I know, th- those cookie crumbs <laughs> were picking them up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you're talking to Jack Welsh, you're talking to, um, you, like, the highest levels of CEOs in the world. But when you were just a boy, you know, when you, you came from a background where there wasn't a lot of degrees being thrown around, I mean, that probably wasn't even a thought in your mind. What's it like for you growing up? Very modest. I lived in an apartment without uh, central heating and without a shower or a tub. My parents were both union members. One worked in a textile mill and the other worked in a garment factory. Uh, my mother was unable to read or write. She uh, left school before she graduated grammar school. Uh, my father was legally blind. As I mentioned before, I had no uh, white-collar professional in my entire family. But there was an odd thing about my house because my dad subscribed to Business Week magazine. Now, he had no interest in business. He owned no stocks, of course. But he wanted this kid in Patterson, New Jersey, to see that there was another world outside our little habitat. And uh, I think that that was really an important thing because it it showed me there was a lot more than um, Patterson, New Jersey in the streets. And this is is back in—I mean, this is like— the 60s, right? This is this is a long time. This is not the same. I mean, Jersey now is beautiful, but <laughs> this is a, this is a different Jersey. It was a really interesting community. It, it obviously uh, was a decaying uh, urban city. It's the third largest city in New Jersey. One third of the population that back then was Hispanic. One third was African American. One third was white. And I grew up in a three-family uh, house. We had the bottom floor apartment. It was owned by my Italian immigrant grandparents. I had a very um, Italian upbringing. Every Sunday there was pasta, uh, dinner. It was a three, four hour family event. People argued across the table naively about the politics of the day, but very vigorously and uh, with great passion. My grandfather made uh, homemade pasta. He made his own wine. He had uh, in the cellar with a dirt floor uh, the wine press, and it pressed up against the floorboards of my parents' bedroom, which made it look like, you know, a crooked old play, uh, fun house kind of thing. Oh, he like bent the wall? Yes. Uh, <laughs> wow. Bent, bent the floor. So it was that, everything actually, in the not, pursuit not of a, wine. Yes. Yeah, how much did he want that wine? Okay. <laughs> uh, but it was a very loving family, very compassionate, and... Um, you know, I never knew that I didn't really have much and uh, went to parochial school, 
because that's what uh, good Italian families did, uh, St. John's Cathedral High School and St. Michael's Grammar School in Patterson. And then I didn't even know what college was. I applied to one school. It was only a state college, William Patterson and Wayne. Uh, didn't even know if I would go. I, I fancied a little bit thinking go, I might go into the Air Force. I had an experience early with the Air Force that I liked. I was accepted, and I went. And it changed my life in every possible way. I became editor of the College Weekly for two years. First day on campus, I reported to the uh, newspaper and became the rock critic. I was music director of the radio station. I was a member of the student government. I worked on a literary magazine, a political science magazine. And it changed everything about who I was and what I wanted in life. Is there somebody in that time frame that inspired you to take that trajectory? I mean, it could be something as simple as you mentioned that your your father would always get you know, business magazines. Is there someone that was pushing you forward and propelling you forward? No. I don't know why I became very naturally ambitious, but I did. And it wasn't about money ever. It was about trying to be as productive and fulfilled professionally as I could be uh, because that made me happy. And, you know, when I got a taste of leading something, managing the newspaper in a staff of like 25 people, that was an extraordinary experience for me and very telling and basically led to my career. I, I hear a lot of curiosity in you. It sounds like you were taking in all the stimuli of your childhood, you know, reading Business Week, sort of seeing how your, your parents raised you in a really, really supportive household, and then you carried that into, you know, getting your, your English degree in political science. And, you know, what we have read about you is that you yourself have actually become quite a mentor to others. Um, and that, you know, we, we've actually heard that you've, you're really, really good at distilling very complex business ideas into something that is very digestible for your readers. So how do you take in all of this wonderful stimuli and, and communicate it effectively? Homework. <laughs> homework. Oh, gosh. Oh, keeps, there's more? No, no, no. We're, yeah. we're done with homework. <laughs> we're graduating. I thought the homework's no over. <laughs> what a bummer. <laughs> no, no. Here's the, here's the thing. You know, I, um, I didn't have the advantage of growing up in uh, an upwardly mobile, socially, socioeconomic place. So I befriended people who were really smart. And I went to lunch with them a lot. And we would talk about what they did and their view of the world. And I probably had a half dozen people who I picked out who were incredibly generous, who would just go to lunch with me, you know, and we'd chat about everything involving business and society and people. And there were a lot of very high-level discussions, far beyond my ability of my little brain uh, to totally absorb, but I can tell you that a lot of the ideas that I came up with came up with because I regularly met with incredibly smart, brilliant people uh, who I had befriended throughout my journalistic career. You know, there are three pieces of being a journalist. One is the generation of ideas, one is the reporting, and one is the crafting of the piece, the writing. I'd have to say of the three things, I was always best at idea generation. I was very entrepreneurial and very creative about the ideas that I um, pitched and um, then went after. 
Uh, I was an okay writer, I think, and I think I think you're better than uh, you're I know. Better than okay, <laughs> yeah, like you, you were the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list for like 26 weeks. Yeah, wow, well, that's objective. Yeah, that's a, that's just some data, and there's no there's no hitch in that data. That's pure data. But the curiosity is an important part because you, if you're really interested in people and you're really interested in ideas uh, and what moves the world forward and what holds the world back, uh, you can ask a lot of really uh, penetrating questions and, and get at the heart of things. I really, really like that story. When you come to business school, you learn about networking and what it means to start building business relationships. And in our conversations that Frank and I have had over now two years, which is incredible that we've known each other for that long, he has always said to me, networking is making friends. It is going to lunch. It is going to a happy hour, having dinner with somebody. It's involving them in your life and, and vice versa. And you are speaking that truth. And and we see your success as sort of... <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> I'm not going to say you're it's right. it's objectively. But it is objectively. That That is yeah. so true. You know, the those, those intimate conversations over a meal or you know, over coffee, that is where the magic happens. That's where um, idea generation really gets its start. That's I think really networking true. is silly, but friends matter. Uh, yeah, and you know, when I networked, I networked for ideas and for thinking partners. Didn't network for my job um, or my career ever. It was always about, you know, really smart people and sitting down with them and talking about things that mattered. Yeah. Uh, and it made a difference to me. I will tell you, I just finished uh, on the plane ride out from California. I finished the foreword uh, for a book that's being written by a friend. And uh, you mentioned connection. Okay, there are two, uh, the, the theory of the book is basically there are two most important things that you can do in life. You know, we grow up in environments where we're tested and grades matter. Uh, and then you get into the working world, and guess what? You are tested, but it's not like an exam that you study for and cram for. Um, and grades really aren't important. What is important is developing great communication skills and, and developing connections with people. Because ultimately, your success in the world uh, will be determined by how engaged you are with other people and how you get along with them. Because your skills and your talent, that's just an assumed thing. That's, those are table stakes. And many people have that. So your success will really be dependent on the connections you make with people and how deep they are and also your happiness. And I think that's something that Post and Quants does so well. It It is not just a number or a set of bullet points. The communication pops off the page. I mean, your your face is literally on the site speaking to people. You, it's very personal. It's, it's a very, personal very experience. Personal. Yeah. You, you conduct mock interviews with students. I mean, it is it is so, it's incredible how, how much community you have created through that website. And, and you know, I think we're interested in what, what's the future of Poets and Quants? What's the next step? Boy, well, we're, you know, we're, we're big in the events business right now. We, this year, last year we had three what we called center court events in London, New York, and San Francisco. And here's what I love about this. Center court is an attempt to reinvent an old, stale, boring business, the MBA admissions fair. And what we do is we pick really cool places, like in New York last year, we were at the New York Times Center. We'll be there again this fall. In San Francisco, we're at the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. 
And uh, in London, we were in an area where Google is locating its European headquarters. So recently, we came back from London. We, were, we had our event at the Tate Gallery. Oh, oh, so nice. beautiful. Cool. Wow. Spectacular, right? Uh, this year in Houston, we're going to be at the Astrodome. We will have sessions in the dugouts, people. That's so cool. Okay? It's <laughs> so neat. You are so excited Sports. about that. <laughs> Sports, everybody. <laughs> so cool venues, number one. Number two, only the best schools. We turn down schools that want to come that are not highly thought of or Sorry, ranked. Sorry, schools. Sorry. <laughs> Can't fit everybody. And the third thing is we, we create uh, content out of each of these events. We live stream them on Facebook. We produce videos. We do podcasts. We do little gimmicks like guest to school. We have a genius bar where you can come and ask any questions about financing your MBA, uh, the admissions process, uh, your career, and do it without worrying that you're going to be evaluated. We do something we call the committee where we put on stage current and former admission directors from leading schools and basically give them profiles and and ask them to simulate what it would be like to evaluate someone in a admissions committee meeting. We have panels of the highest ranking deans in the world and the highest ranking admission directors. Uh, and so it's a very, very different kind of event. So we went from three to nine this year. Uh, next year, we'll probably go to 12 and we'll go probably to Mumbai and Shanghai, among other places. Then we have what I'm in town here for, which is my favorite event, really. This is called the Pre-MBA Networking Festival. NYU Stern has been an incredible, generous supporter. We have our evening reception here tonight. And what this is is an attempt to bring together people who have been admitted to an MBA program but have not yet stepped foot on campus. They're four months, five months away from starting your MBA program. This is a whole new world that they're entering. What we want to do is help make their decisions about their careers more directed. So let's say you get into an MBA program. You know you told the admissions officer, I want to do this with the degree. But you don't have, yes. a, you don't have a clue about it. Best guess. But, but Best you, guess. You, know, but you, you, you need it to be... Weren't you starting restaurants or something? I was going to. I yeah. was in hospitality before, and I was apparently going to start an innovative restaurant group. Yeah, it feels now, like looking back at it, it feels now like children coloring. Yeah. It's like, look at this picture I made. Like, it was not an informed, like, after the MBA, you're much more informed than when you started the MBA. That, that, that's really true. And what we're trying to do is get people on track early. So you come to the event. Uh, this is a one-of-a-kind event. And we have the evening reception today, and there's a career coach, and there's a comedian, and there are executives from McKinsey, Amazon, J.P. Morgan Chase, and L'Oreal in a panel discussion. Then there's networking and drinking and hors d'oeuvres. And then the next day, the action starts. There are five company visits that you can make. So if you have no idea what you want to do, you can go to a two-hour McKinsey lunch. You could go to see a panel of uh, executives from PepsiCo and Colgate-Palmolive and CNBC. You can go to Amazon or Google. Uh, you can go to J.P. Morgan, Morgan, Morgan Stanley or Citi. Oh, you can go to a CPG company uh, like um, AB InBev and have a beer. And then, and it's really, you go into their offices, you see leading executives and partners of the firms. They tell you what it's like to work there. They tell you what um, MBAs do when they get there. They tell you the process of getting hired. And you could, if you know you want to be a consultant, literally one day you can go to McKinsey, Bain, BCG, Accenture, AT Kearney, and several others. You know you want to go into banking, you can go to five top banking firms. If you don't know what you want to do, you can crisscross and zigzag all over the place and get a, get a feel for each of these industries and, and companies. 
that is a lot of opportunity. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It sounds uh-huh. almost like a South by Southwest for M- Yeah, I, li- I like that. Yeah, and I like that a lot. You can have that. We you didn't trademark that at all. But. You know what's so interesting, though? You know, it, it almost sounds like an Amazon story, and I'll elaborate on that, because they started in the digital space. They sold books. Mastered the digital space, and then realized that even though you know, that the digital world is growing and almost bottomless at this point, that they really wanted to get back to brick and mortar, to those that community, and to make those personal connections. And that's exactly what you're doing. You're bringing events, you're bringing humanity back into this MBA process in a really fun way, it sounds like. What I really like about the events is this. We get to meet our audience face-to-face. You know, in the online world, you don't. And it's important to me and my staff to see how important we are to our audience. And going to these events and meeting people face-to-face and having chats with them reinforces the work that we do and the importance of it. And that's the most important thing about the events, frankly. Yeah, Uh, and you give them every resource. We certainly try, and, you know, you never are happy with what you're doing. At least I'm not. Always um, more? Is that the idea? Always more. Always more growth. Better. <laughs> always better. <laughs> always better. I like that. I like better than more. We produce a lot. We really do. Now, so so for sea change, there's more to do in terms of our coverage of executive education, our coverage of undergraduate business, our coverage of executive MBA programs. Uh, we would someday like to do a med school site and a computer science and engineering site at the graduate level. And we would like to build out an events business on the undergraduate business side where there are no events whatsoever. Because, you know, the business major is the most popular major in America. One in five kids now major in business. Of course, the MBA is the most popular graduate degree in America and has been for a number of years. But I think most of the expansion will be on the event side, multimedia side, and in some of these other websites that we have. We have five websites. There's so many more resources now for people than there were even like five years ago, 10 years ago, when I hear all of the things that you guys are offering to people, I just think, hey, listen, millennials, you got no excuses. It's all there for you. But, it, but in, you know, to John's point, like, it's better, you know? So, so much better. So. Absolutely. You know, you're the leader of a very large organization now. And a it lot of- doesn't feel large. No? <laughs> well, it's very important. I mean, like, you have shaped so much of what we understand about MBA, the MBA experience, you, you've given people monikers. I mean, we call, uh, we have a person here, uh, uh, the admissions director's name is Easter Galogli. Of course. And I, we've called him oh, many yeah. times the gatekeeper because <laughs> you wrote an article where you said he's the MBA gatekeeper. Yes, exactly. You know, Nate Pettit, he's, uh, he was like on the 40 under 40 list, reference it all the time. Like, you give people titles. Like, you have, you have a lot of pull in the MBA world. But for the people that work for you, you know, you're, you're a boss. You know, and I thought it would be fun, just with people that work for you, if we could do some <laughs> some rapid fire, quick fun questions. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sherry, are you okay with this? Uh, pl- go for it. John, what's your spirit animal? My spirit animal. It's got to be a lion. Why a lion? Ah, uh, because they rule the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true boss. Nobody messes with the lion. <laughs> no way. And they have a tremendous mane. And a great growl. That's true. They're very. They're. It's a very handsome animal. And it's a very dominating animal. So I went on a safari. <laughs> you did. For a, it was an international course with NYU Stern. 
And it was an amazing experience, and it included a safari, and I saw many lions. And they actually are quite sleepy animals. Really? Yeah, they, they, they like a nice snooze that. in the middle of the day. So maybe maybe you also enjoy that as well. That's when they're not hungry. Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> oh that's so good. That's so good. So a hungry lion. Okay, exactly. all right, John, next rapid fire fun question for, for folks. What's your preferred superpower? If you had God. to pick one, don't bundle them. Wow. Don't give me a Superman situation. These are totally millennial questions, they aren't are. they? Yeah, you know what? For, I'm not a Marvel Comics guy, but... <laughs> Preferred superpower, what would, you, what would you have? Oh, I think I'd like to fly uh, through the sky like a Superman. I'd like to be able to take flight. Yeah, and you know, that pivots me to this question, which is, people talk about super skills and having superpowers, right? Like, you're the best at something in your field, or you think you're the best at something. You're like, this is what I do best. What do you do best? What's your super skill? I observe people and uh, can pretty much figure out if they're telling me the truth or not or how they're shading it uh, and how much discount I should apply to what they say. I'm I'm a very good observer of people. Their body language and everything about them. I'm gonna sit different. I was now. just about to say, I'm suddenly feeling very self-conscious. I, I know. I'm a curious. What's the discount rate? Yeah. What's the discount rate on Sherry Holt? Oh 98%. man. <laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. Yeah. So um, yeah. Okay. Last, last fun one. Pancakes or waffles? These are millennial questions. I like waffles. I think there's a little more texture to them, a little more perspective. Uh, they're not so flat. <laughs> do you, do you fill them with, with bacon and cheddar, or do you just go classic? Uh, I do like bacon. I try not to have too much of it. My favorite place to eat breakfast is the Waffle House. Ah, it's always open. Okay, yeah, <laughs> but there, there, there aren't any in California, but I do an annual spring training trip in Florida. Oh, my, for baseball? Yep, with my best friend, my son, and his sons. Uh, it's a great bonding trip. Uh, we've done it now for, I think, 14 years in a row. That's awesome. Uh, four days, four games. Do you, do you, you know your son, do you, does he have any interest in writing? Do you, do you teach him some of the, the craft? No, he's a do-gooder. He's in the... Um, you know, counseling area. There's nothing oh, wrong with that. Wonderful. No, nothing wrong with nothing that. Wrong with that at all. That's great. Thing. I didn't raise any investment bankers or, <laughs> or uh, McKinsey partners. No. Well, perhaps when you get your powers to fly, you can just fly over to see him and take him to the Waffle House at some point. Yeah, yeah there absolutely. You go. Totally. So, John, you have such a tremendous breadth of knowledge in journalism and business. There's a lot of stuff that you know people read to teach themselves how to be a better MBA. But what what is a lesson you can't get out of a textbook? that you've learned as an entrepreneur and expert in business? I think it's the value of connection. It really is. It comes down to who do you know, uh, how good is that relationship, and how can you depend on it for support, encouragement, uh, and enrichment. I think the more people you know and the more deeply you connect with them, you have a better life. You have said it all. You have said it all, John. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Do you have any last messages for people who are listening or your family or prospective students? Anything you'd like to say? Not really, but I'd like to congratulate you, too. You've just run the gauntlet of a two-year MBA program at the highest level, and you're now going to go off and start your career. And that's, you know, really especially exciting time. Uh, What you've learned in these last two years and the friends that you've made— you'll have for the rest of your life. I happen to think the MBA is one of the most valuable degrees anyone could possibly have. 
And if you look at what I've written, when anyone ever attacks the degree or the people who get it, guess who stands up and defends the education and the people? Me. And I do it in no uncertain terms because I am that big a believer in the value of this education. Well, we hope to not squander it and go out and do really good things Absolutely. and help society. You, you have said so much great stuff. It, it, this is actually the last podcast for me and Sherry. Uh, it's a good last one because you have said some stuff I'm really going to think about. But more importantly... Did you have fun? I, ha- I had a great time. Ah, oh, that's Excellent. great. Did you have fun, Sherry? I had so much. I always have and fun. And you know, now now I feel sad because you guys, this is the last one. Yeah, well, we're going to work on podcasts together, you know, after school, but it won't be for, for Stern necessarily because we're going to stay friends, Sherry. Me, yes, you. we there you will. Go. And I especially feel privileged to be your last guest. Thank you, John. And we, we feel privileged we. to have you for sure. Well, you had fun. You had fun. That's half the battle. That's it, everybody. Last, uh, last episode for us. Thank you, John. Thank Thank you. you Thank you, and good luck to you.